Uh, this morning, as we continue now in our Ephesians series, I'm putting, putting two weeks together because we did the Columbia trip update last week, and I wanted to give Chris that whole Sunday. And uh, so I'm putting uh, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 together, and, and thematically they're really very similar. Uh, what we're encountering here in the book of Ephesians is a transition from chapters 1, 2, and 3. I want to get this in context for you. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, when Paul is talking about, as you remember, just mainly focusing on God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and what God has done for us. And you remember, he talked about choosing us before the foundation of the world. And he was praying that the people of Ephesians, of Ephesus, would, would know how wide and how deep and how long and how tall the love of Christ is. And, and those sort of grand chapters at the beginning of Ephesians is talking all about what God has done. He's the initiator and he has done for us. Very gospel centric, right? Those verses are the gospel that that God has done for us what we couldn't do. And Paul is just praying that, that we could comprehend how great God is. But now what happens in 4, chapter 4, and moving into, into chapter 5, we get this transition where we move from the great doctrines of God and His behavior towards us. And we move into verses that spell out things like right and wrong behavior and how we're supposed to act and how we are not behaving the way we're supposed to. And even go so far to say that people who behave this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, those are very contrasting types of verses, right? We, we love, when we read the Bible, reading those verses about God and His mercy and His grace and the gospel and Christ has come and died and it's not by works that anyone should boast, right? We, we love reading those verses, but then we come to these other verses and they kind of stand out to us. You know, Paul and Peter, James, John, even Jesus, giving lists of behaviors that we should do or not be doing as Christ followers. And we kind of gravitate to these verses because they make us make it really easy for us to compare our lives to others and to the Bible. Because we have a nice simple list about, you know, stealing and adultery and, you know, lying and gossiping and things like that. And so we come to those things and, and we can kind of compare ourselves to them and, and we can go through the list with a marker and check off our qualifications or our disqualifications or even better the qualifications and disqualifications of other people right i can't count the number of times in marriage counseling i've heard some variation of he keeps doing this and the bible says he isn't supposed to or she says that she's a christian but she did this to me tell her to stop yes of course that's why god gave us the bible so that we could compare ourselves to each other and point out our faults. That's exactly why we have it. Maybe that's in the book of Second Opinions somewhere. Um, <laughs> chapter U. Um, but, but we do that, right? We, we, we come to these, ver- these verses and it says this is how Christians are supposed to behave. And this is how Christians are not supposed to behave. These verses give clear commands to behave. And they're certainly there in our Bibles, so we can't ignore them. We find them in every book of the Gospels and in the New Testament. And so just as we have to understand the great doctrinal, theological, majestic, cosmic truths that tell us about who God is, that we love to dwell on, we also have to understand these verses that we come to in Ephesians that start to say, this is how you're expected to behave. This is how you are expected to act. Or to put it this way, there is as much an aspect of behaving, isn't there, as there is in believing in the Christian faith. 
But how do we get behaving in the right context? And there's a reason Ephesians is written the way it is. Of course, there's a reason that Paul has framed things the way they have. And it's important as we read these verses on the importance of behaving that we do so in such a way that we don't contradict the other verses about the power of believing. And what I mean is it can't both be true that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world and set us free by grace through faith and at the same time be true that it's our good behavior that is the means by which we enter the kingdom of heaven. They can't both be true. So how do we read these verses about behavior within the context of the verses of God's grace and believing? So when we get to these verses on our actions, our activity, our behavior, it'll be important to understand the context in which they're written and meant to be read. And that's what this message today is about. It's really about context. How do we come to verses like these in the last half of Ephesians that talk about Christian behavior and understand them in the light of Christian grace and the gospel? And so Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a great place to look at that contrast and that context of these two kinds of verses that we encounter those about how God acts and those about how we are to act. Because obviously in Ephesians, this letter contains both. And in virtually equal number, chapters 1 to 3, again, being mainly about God and his actions towards us, and chapters 4, 5, and 6, being mainly about us and how we are supposed to behave. And so in the text of chapter 4 and continuing into chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is basically going to describe our old condition or our old situation and the means by which we take hold of and make real our new condition and then contrast the old to the new so that we can see the difference. So Paul is really talking about life with Jesus and life without Jesus, and what the difference is between life with Jesus and life without Jesus is. So let's just read Ephesians just from uh, chapter 4, 17 down to 32, and then I'll focus just on the earlier verses of that. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. So you see there that we've now moved away from these grand, majestic statements about God and His love and His mercy, and it's come down to be kind to one another and stop lying and stop gossiping and stop stealing and stop being impure and start being good and kind and pure and all of these things, right? And, and it's suddenly become about a lot of do's and don'ts. And this is where we can get hung up in the Christian faith that, 
oh yeah, I've run into those Christians before. I've been to church. It's just a whole, it's just a list of rules, just a list of do's and don'ts, right? And we can get caught up in that. But we have to understand the context in which Paul is now saying that our behavior follows our believing. So the first thing that we look at in terms of understanding the context, when we come to to verses like this in the Bible, we can't just skim over them. The first thing we have to understand, and maybe this is obvious, but I'll make it clear, that these scriptures are Jesus' word to us. These instructions to us, these verses come from Christ. This this is what, what Paul says to open up in verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. That's kind of a funny way of saying it, but you could read it this way. This I say and act as a witness to Jesus. Or this I say and affirm alongside Jesus. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, these are things I'm teaching you. When I give you this list of instructions, you can't just say, oh, this is just Paul. These are just cultural issues. You know, he's just giving a bunch of legalistic rules because he used to be a Pharisee. No, Paul is saying, I am testifying to the teaching of Jesus. This instruction comes from what Jesus has already taught his followers. And we could go to the Gospel of Matthew to see Jesus teaching some of this. He says, you are the salt of the earth, so be salty. You are the light of the world, so shine in the world, to paraphrase Matthew 5, 13 and 16. Or he says, be meek, be merciful, be peacekeepers, be pure, Matthew 5, 3 to 10. Or to put it in the negative, because Jesus does that too, he says, don't be like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 3. Don't do what they do. They're blind guides. They're full of greed and self-indulgence. They're full of wickedness, etc. So Jesus does the same thing that Paul does. He says, be good, be kind, be merciful, be salt, be light in the world. And then he says, don't be like those Pharisees who are greedy, right? Paul's just saying, this is not stuff I'm making up. This is teaching coming from Jesus. And so we have to understand when we come to these scriptures that this is Jesus' teaching that Paul is affirming. And we have to be careful that we don't try to create some difference between the red-letter words of the New Testament and the black-letter words of the New Testament. And some people try to do that in their Christianity. There's, there's a lot of people who want to do that. They, they want to set the black letters against the red letters. And they say, like, if it's in the red letters, if Jesus taught it, then it's good to follow. But if it's in the black letters, then it's up for debate. You know, maybe Paul is... Maybe it's just Paul's opinion. Or maybe it's just John's opinion. Or maybe this is, you have to understand Peter in his context. And so they, they take the red letters and they try to set them against the black letters. But you cannot do that. First of all, you're not reading the red letters very carefully if you think that they're different than the black letters. And secondly, if you take that position of pitting the black letters against the red letters in the Bible, the words of Jesus, then you're actually opposing Jesus and what he taught. Because he told us in John 14 and 16, Jesus said that there were things that his disciples were not ready to learn, but that when he had ascended, he would pour out his Holy Spirit to be a teacher and to guide us in all truth. It says in John 16:12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So let's just understand this here. Jesus was quite clear. I'm not done teaching you. There's more of my teaching to come. I'm going to leave. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit on you, my disciples and apostles, and you are going to lead people in all truth. Right? So when Paul and Peter and John and James are passing along the teaching of Jesus. They have that teaching from the Holy Spirit. These are not cultural ideas. These are not opinions of patriarchal old men. These behaviors are the teaching of Jesus. They're truths about the will of God. 
So namely, what is the truth that we're dealing with here, particularly in these verses, is that we must live distinctly. Our behavior is supposed to change as Christians. There is a moral component to Christianity. And so these verses, the second thing, calls us to a distinct behavior. Paul says, you must, not, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Now, Paul is using the word walk here, as we do in Christian circles. You've probably heard it used this way many times before uh, in terms of living out your life. You know, you might go for a coffee with a brother and say, hey, how's your walk going? Or, you you know, you might be, you know, having a scone with a sister and say, you know, how's your your walk going, sister? How's your walk with Christ going? Right? That's how Paul's using it. Walking is a metaphor for the whole of life. And Paul says, don't walk like a Gentile. And a Gentile here is anyone who's not a Jew. But in in this context, Paul means it in a spiritual sense, meaning a Gentile being someone who has no part or no interest in the kingdom of God. So Paul says, don't walk like those Gentiles who are apart from God, like an unbeliever. Now, Paul's not trying to say that Christians can't do anything Gentiles do. He's not talking about things like, well, Gentiles drive cars and so we shouldn't drive cars or, you know, Gentiles go to movies and so you shouldn't go to the movies. You know, Paul obviously gives context and spells out exactly what he means. He says, don't live in futility. And then he describes what that futility of the Gentiles is that we are, as Christians, not to be a part of. In verse 17, he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Then he says, they are darkened in their understanding in verse 18. He says there is ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart in verse 18. And then in verse 19, it says they've given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so as you're reading those couple of sentences, if Romans 1 comes to your mind, kind of echoes of Romans 1, that's good. It should because Paul's basically saying the same thing. Professing to be wise, they gave themselves over, proved themselves to be fools. Instead of worshiping the Creator, they worshiped the created, and God gave them over to all kinds of wickedness and impurity. That's, that's Romans 1, right? And so Paul is saying the same thing here about these Gentiles. There's futility. They're darkened. There's ignorance. They've given themselves up to sensuality and greedy practice and every kind of impurity. And so there's in these Gentiles a moral resistance to the gospel and the truth of God that results in sensuality or the unrestrained pursuit of passions. So as I just described that, does that sound familiar to you? Could you look around in the world anywhere and see futility and darkness and ignorance that has given people up to sensuality and greedy practice and to harden their heart against the truth of God? Do we see that anywhere in our world? Right? And Paul says, don't walk like they walk. Don't be those people. There is a moral component. Don't live in unchecked immorality. There's a moral component to Christianity that's supposed to set Christians apart. Our behavior impacts our witness. Remember, Jesus said, be salt and light. The distinction between Gentile, in Paul's words, or unbeliever and believer is important to our witness and important to our blessing the world. How can we bless the world if we live in the same sensuous immorality as the world? If we are exactly the same as the world, then our message and our impact are nothing. And so Paul says, don't live a life that is not centered on God. Don't live a life that isn't God-treasuring and God-exalting and God-focusing. That's how Gentiles live. Paul says that Christians should walk or live out lives in a way that are distinct from that sort of person. Jesus said that his disciples should be in the world but not of it, that they should be salt and light, and distinctness from the world is how we bless the world. This call for distinctiveness to be different 
than non-Christians are, to actually behave differently, to demonstrate this, that life with Jesus is different than life without Jesus. That's what it comes down to. We're showing all of that power that we talked about in Ephesians 1 through 3 comes true in the sense that life with Jesus is dramatically different than our life without Jesus. I was counseling a young engaged couple just recently who had come from a couple of different family backgrounds and had different experiences with Christianity at different ages and in different ways through their family. And we talked at some length about the differences that they could see between life with Jesus and life without Jesus over the course of their lives. They're they're just barely 20. And, and, And basically, they could see, without a whole lot of church background, some with church background and family, some with seasons of church and seasons without church, one without any church background at all, they could see the difference between life with Jesus and life without Jesus. When mom and dad were going to church and trying to figure it out, what the house was like, and then those years when mom and dad were not going to church and were not trying to figure it out and what the house was like then, or what her parents were like without Jesus and what his parents and grandparents were like with Jesus. You can see the contrast. We we talked for almost an hour about it. Just the contrast between life with Jesus and life without Jesus. And that's what this behavior boils down to. That there is a difference in life with Jesus and without. And here Paul is describing that very reality. We are called to a different set of moral norms and values. But it's more than just a legalistic call to be good. Paul's going to spell out those specific ways in which we are to live. And, and we read them, right? All those very particular things. Thieves don't steal anymore. And, you know, don't be impure. And, you know, don't let any uh, impure talk come out of your mouth. And malice, right? Paul's going to spell out all these things. But this is not a legalistic set of rules. This is not Paul saying, be good so that God can accept you. This is Paul explaining how our behavior is to change based on the knowledge of God. And so, again, we have to understand the context. Before Paul gets to his commands for our behavior, he pauses to remind us of another context of these commands. He reminds us of the doctrine of union with Christ so that we don't go into the verses that are following thinking that the message of Christianity is be a good person rather than the message of Christianity being the gospel that Christ is good and we are one with Christ. And so Paul does that by contrasting darkness and ignorance and futility of our old walk with truth, renewal, and creation in our new walk. Let's just read again verses 20 to 24 and look at the difference in the wording that Paul uses. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And I just highlighted for you here uh, with red boxes all of the connected themes that Paul has now shifted from futility and darkness and ignorance and greed and sensuousness, he now says, learn Christ, taught in him, truth is in Jesus, renewed in the spirit of your mind, a new self created in the likeness of God, in holiness and in truth. And all of these phrases speak to learning and truth and renewal and new self and new creation. And all of it is connected to Jesus. In other words, we're not conformed by passions, but we are transformed by our minds. 
And so we often hear people ask for a version of Christianity that's less doctrinal and less theological and more practical, less intellectual and more pragmatic in its engagement with our behavior. You hear people say, just just give me a Christianity that says, you know, eat, pray, love, or something like that. Right? Yeah. So so we have those books and we have those, those messages out there that are like, you know, just take all that doctrine and take all that theology. I don't want that. I, I just want a Christianity that's just warm and fuzzy and everybody just, you know, loves each other. Drop all that heaviness. But that would completely rob Christianity of all of its power. It would leave us with a list of commands to try to modify behavior and no power to accomplish that. Christianity is by all means very practical. Its aim is complete life transformation, but it's rooted in theological reality. It's rooted in the knowledge of God. If it isn't, then it's just another legalism. It's just another moralism. And there are plenty of moralisms out there for you to choose from. But Christianity is not just another list of things that you're supposed to do and not do. If Paul does not frame the practical teaching of his letters within the doctrine of grace, then it simply becomes moralism. It's just another set of rules. It's the, it's the understanding that we have of what God has done for us and our new creation in Christ that prevents the commands for new behavior from just becoming another set of laws. You see the difference? And so I'm trying to set this up because when we come to these verses where Paul or Peter or James or Jesus talks about how we are to now behave, we have to understand the context always follows the reality of what God has done for us first. Paul roots these commands to behave differently within the reality of Christ and our unity with him. And so we're reminded and we hear Paul saying, when we, when we hear Paul saying, live this way and don't live that way, we won't hear that Christianity is merely a list of do's and don'ts, but we will understand Ephesians 1 to 3. That once someone has been embraced by the grace of Jesus Christ, once someone has been overwhelmed by the love of God, once someone is rooted and grounded in the love of God, that should sound familiar, that's from earlier in Ephesians, their life is transformed and changed so that their behavior changes as a result. And that is nothing like legalism. That is nothing like just a list of do's and don'ts. The key to understanding how to live as salt and light and how to put away the old self and put on the new self, how to stop old sin and start new obedience is this central idea in verse 20. Okay, this is where the rubber meets the road. So you're sitting there and you're thinking, I want to be less greedy. I want to be less conceited. I want to gossip less. I want less malice to come out of my mouth. I want to be more pure. I I want those things, you know, because I see these things that Paul has written. How do I do it? Paul has said before he even gets to the list how to do it. Verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. The whole of the Christian life is all integrally and inseparably connected to Jesus Christ. And just notice how Paul puts everything here about our learning of Jesus also in Jesus. He says, if indeed you heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. So Paul first says, you need to learn Christ, meaning the subject of our learning is Jesus Christ. Okay, so Jesus is the subject that you need to learn. What are you going to learn? Learn Christ. And then he says... If you have heard him, and in your, book, in your Bible you may have the word about in italics, because the word about actually isn't in the Greek. Paul literally says, if you have heard him, learn Christ, if indeed you have heard him. So who is teaching about Christ? 
Christ is the teacher. Learn about Christ if you have heard him, if he's spoken to you and you're hearing him. So Christ is the subject and he's the teacher. And then Paul goes on and he says, taught in him or the truth is in Jesus. And so where does a person find the truth about Jesus? In Jesus. If you've been taught in him, in fellowship with him, he's the context or the sphere in which we do this learning. And so just look at how often Jesus has become central to what Paul is saying in terms of the learning. Jesus is the content of the truth, he's the conveyor of the truth, and he's the context of the truth. Jesus is the subject that you are learning, he's the speaker of what you are learning, and he is the sphere in which you learn what you are learning. You learn of him, from him, in relation to him. Everything is central to Jesus. And when we get that, when we understand how Paul comes into these verses and he frames things this way, he says, learn Christ if you hear him teaching you, learn him in relationship with him. Now you have to look at the whole of your life as an extension of what you know about Jesus. From Jesus, in relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says it this way, because again, Paul's just teaching what Jesus already taught. Jesus said it this way. He says, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus says, my life, my food, my being is to do the will of the Father. And so if you're really a disciple of Jesus, then you will delight to know and do the Father's will. And so the contrasted life that you're going to live out is based not on do's and don'ts, but it's based on this new life in Christ. So again, bring it back. If you're asking yourself, I, Paul, I want that. I want to be more pure. I want to be less impure. I want to wholesome words to come out of my mouth. I, I want to be less greedy. I want this transformed behavior that Paul's talking about. Paul has given you the context of it in the first three chapters of Ephesians and then again before he even says it. He says, learn Christ. That's how your behavior changes from knowledge of Christ. And now Paul goes on to elaborate on that truth, that gospel in practical terms, what it means for life transformation. In verse 22, he says, you laid aside your old self, which is being corrupted. They took away my clock. Um, Oh, we're good. We're good. So you took away your old self. In verse 22, you laid aside your old self, which is being corrupted so that you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. But that renewal comes from knowing Christ. Notice it's renewal in the spirit of your mind. Learn Christ from Christ in relationship with Christ. This transformation is going to come from renewal of your mind. Then in verse 24, the new self has been created in the likeness of God, righteous, holy, and true. In other words, you don't create yourself. You don't work yourself into a new person that measures up to God. You are being created by God. Who, what person can create themselves? Nobody. What person can make themselves be born? Nobody. What person can raise themselves from the dead? Nobody. It's the work of God that has to do this. You don't work yourself into a new person that measures up to God. God has remade you in unity with Jesus so that now, after being recreated, now you can behave morally. The disciple John in his letters calls it regeneration. The apostle Paul often calls it resurrection. But you can't cause yourself to be born. You can't cause yourself to come back to life. God has done it. So now, having been renewed and having been recreated by the power of God, now you go and live a new life. And so the bottom line is we must believe before we can behave. We must have Christ and learn Christ before we come to these instructions on how to live. 
Let me be clear. There definitely are do's and don'ts in the Christian life. Christianity is a moral religion. But the do's and don'ts of the Christian life are the consequence of God's work in us. They are not the cause of God's work in us. We don't work on a list of do's and don'ts to measure up so that we qualify for God. God accomplishes something in us, and from God's accomplishment in us, then flow the results of works and transformation in our life. It's God's grace in us. It's as we learn Christ from Christ that we have this transformation. And now we can read the rest of the text which reads like a list of laws or moralism in in that context. If you were just to take the next section of text on its own, you would just think, well, this is just another list of rules. But Paul wants us to see very practically the ways in which we should start to see our lives being different with Jesus than it was without Jesus. And so he has some examples, and I'll just put them up there in two quick lists. We won't dwell on them, because I'm sure we've dwelt on them long enough on our own. Don't practice impurity and greed. Rather, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put off your old self. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Stop having, or put away falsehood. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Don't sin. Resolve your anger quickly. Don't steal. Share and be generous. Stop your poisonous talking. Start encouraging and building up. Put away bitter, ath, ranger, anger, slander, and malice. Rather, be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. You see, it's a list of rules, right? It's a list of Don'ts and do's. But now we understand the context. Now when we get to these scriptures, whether it's in Paul, in Ephesians, whether it's in John, whether it's in James, whether it's in Peter, whether it's in Jesus, when we get to these texts that jump out of us, at us as a list of, of do's and don'ts, as a list of rules, as simply morality clauses, now we understand the context that they're meant to be put in. They're meant to be put in the context of Ephesians 1 through 3, which is the immense doctrinal theological cosmic reality of what God has done before the foundation of the world to call you out of your sin, to give you a new life, that Christ has died for you, that you would know his love and his mercy and grace. It's all of that context, and it's the immediate context of Paul saying that all of this transformation that happens in our lives comes as we learn Christ. So then, as you come to these verses of the Bible, this is what it means. And you feel like they describe you a little bit too well. You come to these verses and you feel like your response must be that you have to bear down and you have to steal your will and you have to work so much harder to correct these behaviors in your life. We think I need to be less greedy and I need to be more generous. I have to stop myself from gossiping. I have to paste on a smile and force myself to be a nicer person. And we come to these lists of rules and we think that the, the way to correct these things in our life is just to work harder at behaving better. Then you're not understanding the context. That would be completely ignoring the context. If we're stumbling in these areas, and we all are, we're all in a process of sanctification. We're all in a process of overcoming these things that bind us to our old life. But if we are stumbling in any of these areas, impurity or greediness or malice or anger or things that we just have to get out of our life, our first course of action is not to just bear down and try harder to stop. Paul says, learn Christ. The answer is to open up our Bibles and our hearts to Jesus and learn more about Christ. Learn Christ from Christ in Christ. A deeper understanding of God and the gospel feeds the deep roots that produce good fruit. 
The way to deal with these areas of our lives is not to harder work, but greater understanding and treasuring of Jesus. If you want a more pure thought life, treasure Jesus. Make a practice of opening your Bible in the morning instead of your cell phone. Treasure Christ if you want to have less malice come out of your life, out of your mouth. If you want to stop anger or greed or impurity, make Jesus the center of your study and the behavior will follow. It's no accident that Paul opens up his letter to the Ephesians with statements like this in Ephesians 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure, all the fullness of God. Do you understand the context? Paul is not saying here's a whole bunch of rules you have to follow. Yes, there's a moral component to Christianity, but he's saying you will fail if you simply try to follow the rules. This is how you do it. You pray that you would know that Christ dwells in your hearts and you would know his love and you would be rooted and grounded in him and the behavior will come after that. That's how we change our behavior. It's with learning Christ, hearing from Christ, in Christ, asking the Holy Spirit to give us this knowledge. And as we nurture this knowledge in our hearts, the behavior just comes. The behavior is the fruit that comes out of a tree with its roots down deep in this knowledge of Christ. So when we get to these verses that talk about how we were to behave, in your mind, I just want you to say, yeah, I see those verses and I see those things in my life that I need to change. And rather than focusing on those, I'm going to shift my mind over to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to study him. And as I study him and treasure him, and worship him, the behavior will follow. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for these words that are the teaching of your son through the Apostle Paul. We admit we come to verses like this that talk about envy and slander and impure thoughts and impurity and adultery and strife. And then we read verses that say, people that practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And these are scary verses. We think we don't measure up. We don't behave the way we're supposed to. Father, we just give you thanks that the context of this is the gospel. That you knew us before the foundation of the world. That you know that we are dust. That you sent your son to die for us. That he shed his blood on the cross to accomplish what we couldn't. That all of this righteousness is his and that we've inherited it from him so father when we come to these verses we don't beat ourselves up and grit our teeth and just figure we're going to try and work harder to make you happy we lean into your grace and your mercy father help us to open your word and to learn christ and from treasuring him then the fruit will grow then the fruit of our behavior will transform and we will be distinct from the world, salt and light, a testimony and a witness to how good life is with Christ as opposed to life without him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.